Tell us about the new E-Class without telling us. I'll start. New style. New performance. New technology. Oh, and an all-new attitude. When innovation and design meet luxury and precision, the new Mercedes-Benz E-Class has arrived. Now with an all-new attitude. Visit authorized Mercedes-Benz dealers or find out more at mercedesbenz.com.my. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good evening. You're tuned to the Evening Edition. I'm Caroline O. Now, this evening, I'm going to be exploring a situation most of us have been in at one point or another. So let me start with a question. Now, how many times have you lost your cool at one of those customer service reps on the other end of the line? You know, the good afternoon, ma'am. How can I help you with your account today? So it sounds very much like they're reading from a script. In fact, most of the time they are. And it has on more than one occasion gotten the better of me. I even have this sort of vision in my mind's eye of someone just ticking off boxes on some SOB checklist. So you know it's happened to you, I'm pretty sure. And goodness knows it's happened to me. In fact, over the weekend, I almost lost it with a ticketing agent at an airline. So their website payment system was down. I had to call them to book my ticket. And the lady on the phone, well, she was polite, she was well-spoken. And she proceeded to tell me that if I were to buy my tickets over the phone, I would have to pay an extra 400 ringgit over what it costs online. So you can imagine things kind of went downhill fast after that. Uh, I've had similar arguments with flight attendants, bank tellers, uh, baristas, waiters. Nothing I'm particularly proud of, of course, but the one thing I've rarely, rarely done, the one thing I'm sure a lot of us don't do, is put ourselves in their shoes. So a typical day could actually start with um, coming in for their shift and begin by tidying up the restaurant. So the setting up cutleries, polishing glasses, um, ironing tablecloths. Like we, we spend a lot of time ironing tablecloths. That was Darren Tio of Dewakan. Here he is explaining the grueling day-to-day of an average waiter at his restaurant. And then they rush in to check on reservations. So in a small restaurant like mine, you'd have our guys check reservations, respond to emails, respond to queries. At the same time, they're managing the phone lines. At the same time, they're also looking at the Facebook um, page and they have to respond to that. Um, And by the time you know it, you've already had half your day. And that was only the first half where the guest has not come in yet. Somewhere in between, you have a meal um, and then you prepare for dinner service and you start working with uh, all of the other stuff that needs to get done, the finer details. You check the floors, you check the the drapes, you check um, that all the plates are ready, you check all the floral arrangement is all right, you check um, the door, the hostess table, you double-check your reservations, you call your uh, guests that are on the reservation list to confirm a reservation, and then you wait for your first guest to come in. Somewhere in between that, you might be able to squeeze in a short break. And all of that before they even get to your table. It's not easy. And then your guest comes in and they sit down and then we start with this whole ballet of um, what needs to get done for dinner service. And like a restaurant like mine, we do 10 courses. And these 10 courses take up to about two and a half to three hours. And that's not just one table, but you have to manage about six or seven different tables. Um, They'd have to collect dietary restrictions. They have to um, work with the kitchen to make sure that... um, that uh, these dietary restrictions are met and, you know, they can be accommodated for. And in between all of that, they have to deal with guests and make sure that they feel as comfortable and as 
that they, whatever celebrations that they are there for, um, they have a good memory. The tiring amount of work that a waiter has to do is compounded by a key aspect in their jobs, and that is to deal emotionally with the demands of customers who don't always act reasonably. Um, sometimes you bump into customers that are not at all pleasant and they can be very rude and very um, caustic, I think. And despite all of that, they just have to manage their emotion during service and put a smile and just try and work that out, which um, uh, is probably a very difficult thing to do if you put yourself into their shoes. I think it's also the kind of environment that we have. And this, I could be wrong here, okay? So there's this this delineation of status, I guess, like or rather, like, you know, if I'm a customer, I'm for one up over you because you work for the establishment that I'm paying money for this service. And I think that that's really a wrong stand, but it's kind of the stand that people have been force-fed, you know, in the past 20, 30 years maybe. You know, customers always right. No, they're not. And we absolutely disagree. The customer has a potential to be wrong, um, but not necessary that they're always wrong. You come to my restaurant and I want you to have a good time. You come to my restaurant and you want to have a good time. Um, and we're actually just working towards the same thing. You know, so if there was this sort of understanding, this makes it a lot more... Um, it makes the experience pleasurable both for you and for me. And we enjoy it. If not, we wouldn't be doing it. So today, we're going to take a look at this element of work called emotional labour. Emotional labour is essentially the conscious regulation of emotional expressions in the workplace. Now, as part of our daily lives, we do regulate our emotions. There are certain emotions that we don't express in different situations. But emotional labour pertains specifically in the workplace, where you are expected to, because of your roles and your responsibilities, to express certain emotions, at the same time also suppress other emotions. So for instance, a waitress or wait staff, service staff, needs to convey a sense of warmth, uh, welcoming, a sense that they are helpful, they are attentive, but at the same time also restrain themselves from actually expressing emotions of, say, irritation or annoyance towards certain difficult customers. That's Help University psychology lecturer Dr. Eugene T. I think generally the general trend has been like, okay, this is your job, you are being paid for it. Therefore, we expect you to actually conform and actually perform the emotions as requested. It's almost as if we are commercializing human emotion here. We are paying you. You have to put on a certain uniform. You have to follow a certain script and perform your roles properly. So emotional labor is no easy job and different people have found their own strategies of coping with the demands of the job. But if the strategy involves pretending on the surface that you feel a certain way, it's been found to be more emotionally draining than convincing yourself to believe that you actually feel, for example, happy and, and that you care for a customer. Um, because the individual is actively changing their outward expression of emotion, but not necessarily changing internally how they really feel, this tension or this difference between outwardly on their face, they're smiling, but internally they're feeling, oh, I really want to punch this person in the face. That's the kind of emotional labor referred to as surface acting. It's an approach to emotional labor known as surface acting. So on the surface, you're expressing certain emotions, but internally, you're feeling a completely different set of emotions altogether. It's this particular form of emotional labor that can lead to the whole host of negative consequences 
it, it can lead to diminished levels of job satisfaction, uh, lowered motivation, burnout, and a sense of what we call depersonalization. So the individual goes to work and says, I can't care anymore. It's almost as if they've spent all their energy, all their resources trying to manage this tension, this difference between outward expression of emotion and internal expression of emotion, and they've just lost all the resources to do so. The other strategy that contrasts from surface acting to uh, perform emotional labour is called deep acting. There's another form called deep acting, and you might be able to think of cases such as actors. So when you think of actors trying to go into, okay, I need to play this character. So what they do is not only change outwardly the expression of emotion, that is the emotion that they are showing on their faces, but they also try to empathise, they identify with the character, so much so that internally their emotions also change. So this is a form of emotional labour called deep acting. And in contrast with surface acting, deep acting seems to have less of a negative consequence to it. That's Dr. Eugene T, Professor of Psychology from Help University. After this, we'll take a look at the role of organisations and employees to deal with the demands of emotional labour. This is Caroline O on the Evening Edition, BFM 89.9. Bole for Malaysia. Ha. BFM 89.9, the business station. This is the Evening Edition. I'm Caroline O. And today we're taking a look at emotional labour. Uh, it's those kinds of jobs which require managing your feelings and emotional expressions in a particular manner to fulfil the requirements of a job. For example, we all know this one, service with a smile. So when it comes to job roles such as waiters, flight attendants, customer service reps, are certain people naturally better at doing them? Now here's Dr. Eugene T from Help University. Okay, so emotional agility refers to the ability to actually bounce back and recover. But also I think if it applies to emotional labour, it's the extent to which someone can actually modulate, change their emotion states. So an emotionally intelligent individual uh, is likely to have high emotional agility. So they can shift, transfer, they can in a way modulate and regulate, I should say, their emotions from one stage to the other. Actors are actually a very good example of this. Okay, so when they're on stage, they're almost as if like they're a completely different person because they've taken upon a, a, a different role altogether. They have, in a way, become the individual that they are portraying on stage. As for whether we need this level of emotional labour, as, as to whether we can see this level of emotional labour in the workplace or whether it's even necessary in the first place, it's hard to say. That said, certain individuals will find it easier to move from one stage to the other. Uh, and these individuals would also be, um, I would guess, uh, they'll find it easier to move from a surface acting to a deep acting state a lot quicker than some others. Most of the job roles which come to mind when we talk about emotional labour are those that involve the requirement to portray positive emotions. But there are certain jobs which require a consistent expression of negative emotions instead. The earliest studies of emotional labour have been on flight attendants. So your uh, air stewards and stewardesses, they have to portray a sense of like friendliness, welcoming passengers and guests on a plane. But when it comes to other professions like debt collectors, you need a different set of emotions already. I don't think anyone's going to take a debt collector seriously if I say, oh, please, you have to pay back your, your debts. Come on, it's been like three years already. We've tried to track you down. You keep changing your name. So a, a former colleague of mine did a study on um, how debt collectors make sense of their work, right? And emotional labor and the kinds of emotions that they are expected to portray to the debtors is a completely different set. 
So whereas the flight attendant needs to convey the sense of positive emotions, welcoming, inviting, debt collectors, on the other hand, have to portray a sense of assertion, unfriendliness. They also have to learn how to not feel guilty about the fact that they are tracking down someone's debt. So a different series of emotions are actually required. With a flight attendant, we are doing what we call an upregulation, meaning you try to create more positive emotions. You try to change your emotion states. Uh, to be a positive. With debt collectors, though, you have to downplay, you have to downregulate your pleasant emotions, all right? And you have to, in turn, upregulate and express more unpleasant emotions. The emotions that tell the person who owes you money, owes your company money, that I mean business. You have to eventually pay your debts. So I'm sure most of us are familiar with uh, the stereotype that women are more caring and empathetic than men, whether or not that stereotype is true. So how big a role does gender expectations play in those kinds of jobs that involve emotional labour? In the case of crisis, for instance, it seems more acceptable for men to express emotions such as anger, frustration, acting up, being a lot more uh, in terms of uh, high emotional arousal than, say, women. So there are also expectations for what is proper and appropriate for men and women, depending on the situation, depending on context. It might sound a little bit biased for me to mention this, but when a man expresses a lot of strong and pleasant emotions in the workplace, he's being very passionate. You know, he, he, he feels alongside with the employees. But sadly, I think in a very biased way, when a woman does that, oh, she's out of control, she's too emotional, we expect men to express certain emotions, to feel certain emotions, and we expect women to feel and express another different set of emotions. So when it comes to managing the stresses that results from jobs which require high emotional labour, both employees and organisations have a role to play. So this is Karen Yap, Chief Human Resource Officer at Manulife Holdings, weighing in on the need for employers to find employees who are most likely to fit their job roles. We have to hire the right person. They must have actually um, high emotional skills. And it's important, right, they love, you know, the job. And when we want empathetic uh, employees, it's important whether our policies, right, and procedures reflect that. If a policy that's very rigid and not flexible and the environment is very restrictive and not generous to employees, definitely, right, it won't support, you know, the employees, whether it's in the HR department and organisation, to be highly effective, you know, in emotional labour roles. Dr Eugene also agrees with the importance for employees to identify with what they do and to find it personally worthwhile. So we know that when people identify with a job, there's a high level of what we call person and job fit. I see myself as a counsellor. I see myself as a customer service representative. I see myself as a waitress. So if there's a high degree of identification in that my self-concept is similar to the role that I play, it's easier for me to actually adopt the set of emotions required of me. So say I'm, I don't identify with a counsellor, I'll find it very difficult to start to empathise with people because my self-concept is not based around or anchored around the concept of being a counsellor or the identity of being a counsellor. But the selection process is not enough to protect employees against burnout from emotional labour. Here's Karen again. The second thing is actually about coaching. And the organisations, you know, need to actually use metrics to coach right employees and not to punish them. And, you know, employees, you know, have to actually have this kind of um, culture and not so technical is like uh, how many calls, you know, um, how many customers they have served, but rather the quality 
and the customer satisfaction and of course um, provide training no matter how good you know basically and how good the emotional skills it and how motivated you know is an employee i would say that um, generally employees need a lot of training um, how to actually handle difficult customers and if let's say they have very distressed moments what are options you know they can go to they can go to their line managers who has to be trained on coaching skills and whether we have created a team environment a fun you know environment for the employees and for the employees they also have a role to play they have to have actually have self awareness of what is their strength and whether this is something you know um, they are good at and uh, if they you know they have actually issues right they should actually proactively seek help ask for coaching and ask for counseling so actually both of them have a role to play coaching should also involve instilling a more positive perspective amongst the employees so that they can better handle a situation that involves difficult clients you need to train employees with the ability to recognize that sometimes when customers take their frustrations on you it's actually not you who's the cause of the frustration if someone is actually upset that their internet connection has actually gone down they are taking out the frustrations on you their anger actually stems from the fact that they cannot get access to the internet right they're just looking for the first person the first individual to lay their blame and lay their frustrations on so knowing how to in a way what we call reappraise the situation in that this person is angry because of failed service or poor service not because of me however unfortunately because i'm in this role the frustration is actually taking is being taken out on me so in the same way equipping employees with the skills to be able to distinguish between the cause and the target of the customer's frustrations is an important skill uh, in the effective management of emotional labor this in addition to providing social support so having supportive team members uh, supportive managers also provide some sense of guidance and also to very clearly sort of tell uh, the employee engaging emotional labor uh, where is the line when do you stop performing emotional labor and know that this customer is being abusive towards you. So it often goes by saying that the customer is always right. I'm going to challenge that and say that no, sometimes they're not right. Sometimes they can be abusive, sometimes they can be threatening. And I think policies at least from the organization's perspective, they need to outline some kinds of standards and some kind of rules in the interest of uh, making sure that employees don't suffer from the detrimental effects of performing too much emotional labor. Right so if customers become abusive they become very violent they threaten them I've actually heard of cases before I know where you live I'm going to come after you this is where you draw the line and say that the organization does take into uh, its responsibility to ensure that the employees the people performing uh, emotional labor are free from such harms and such threats That was Dr. Eugene T, professor of psychology at Help University, as well as Karen Yap, chief human resource officer at Manulife. After the news, we'll take a look at how emotional labor may soon be performed by robots. Yep, you heard correct. Stay tuned. This is the evening edition, BFM eighty nine point nine. Break from monotony, BFM eighty nine point nine. This is the evening edition. I'm Caroline O. Oh. Now, earlier we looked at the difficult task of performing emotional labor and the need for employees and organisations to manage those demands in order to avoid burnout among workers. Now we're going to take a look at a revolutionary solution for the growing needs of emotional labor. As scientists are looking into developing humanoid robots to perform service roles. Yep, humanoid robots. That's correct. And uh, as the world's population becomes older, these robots may soon be playing the role of caregivers to the elderly.
Uh, one of the groundbreaking robots today is the receptionist at Nanyang Technological University Institute of Media Innovation. Now, her name is Nadine. She is a socially intelligent robot who looks a lot like a human. Here's Nadine speaking to her creator, Professor Nadia Thalman. Hello, nice to see you. What is your job? I am a social companion. I can speak of emotions and I can recognize people. Nadine bears a striking resemblance to Professor Thalman, her creator. Now, she has natural-looking skin and brunette hair and is also very sociable. She makes eye contact. She's able to answer questions. She displays emotions, believe it or not, in her gestures and facial expressions and remembers past conversations that you've had with her. Here is Professor Thalman, Director of the Institute for Media Innovation at Nanyang Technological University, speaking about the most common reactions when people first meet Nadine. So at NTU in Singapore, when they meet Nadine, they are all enthusiastic. They all like to see Nadine interacting and to discuss with her, to test her. So the, the relationship is incredibly positive. At the beginning, they feel a bit uh, not comfortable sometimes, but over the, the time, if they stay, stay uh, 5, 10, 15, half an hour, they will start to, you know, feel this more natural. So the reaction is, is very positive for the visitors. So according to Professor Thalman, humanoid robots such as Nadine will soon be performing caretaking roles, such as taking care of the elderly. For the elderly, what is important is they spend quite a lot of time alone and the more we will go, the more there will be elderly, and the less we will be able to care if they need it 24 hours. So the best when there is nobody is to have at least a humanoid robot that looks like a human, that um, shows empathy like a human, and can discuss, play, monitor, help in any moment of the 24 hours. This is the idea. And in 10 years, I hope that we will see these social robots like Nadine in um, old age home or also as companion to help in many different activities. So we asked Professor Thalman why she thinks humanoid robots are ideal to fulfill these social roles. In my case, I don't like to have a small animal or fluffy animals because I am a human and in my daily life, like now, I interact with humans. So that's the reason why Nadine is important. She needs to mimic our behavior, mimic our emotions, mimic our empathy and comprehension. So it's very important to have this kind of uh, humanoid robot in terms of relationship because it's a way how daily we interact. But the question is whether or not robots should have the genuine capacity to feel human emotions. Professor Thalman thinks that this is not a part of the roles of these robots of the future. Now, Nadine doesn't feel anything in reality. She is just a computer that has a human shape and works like a computer. In reality, she doesn't feel anything. She makes as if or she mimics, she simulates I think uh, robots are computers. They are embedded in different shapes like drones or cars or 
I don't know, automatic uh, uh, crane or this kind of thing. The shape is different depending on the application. If it's a humanoid robot, the humanoid robot is a computer. It works with programs and itself, Nadine or any social robot has no feeling, no pain, no death problem, no illness, nothing. So they just simulate in order that the interaction looks normal for us. In fact, it's a very high human interface tool, but behind is totally a computer. One of the foremost criticisms when it comes to developing social robots is that it will compromise human-to-human relationships. Now, here's what Professor Thalman thinks about this concern. You know, a social uh, robot like Nadine is a very complex entity. So, in fact, you can learn a lot from Nadine because she's linked to Wikipedia and she can reason and she can give advice, she can control, she can do all kinds of actions. Now, many people actually spend quite a lot of time on television or are not necessarily high-level programs. And they spend also, young people, a lot of time on social media, like gaming, for example. I think they learn much more, they would learn much more with a human interface like Nadine, because she is much more complex. She is imitating a clever human person. That was Professor Nadia Thalman, creator of Nadine, the social robot, and director of the Institute of Media Innovation at Nanyang Technological University over in Singapore. If you missed any part of this program about emotional labor, you can download the podcast on our BFM app, and that's available on the Apple App Store or on Google Play. This is the Evening Edition, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.